Next on Rugby Wrap-Up, USA Rugby CEO Ross Young answers the tough questions surrounding bankruptcy, racism, and Rugby World Cup 2027. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by The Pig & Whistle, the world's best rugby pub. The Murphy Kennedy Group, founded with the idea that construction can be done better. And Lean and Limber, stretching your way to a healthier lifestyle. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy in Midtown Manhattan talking rugby. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to our guests today, Stephen Lewis from the Upper West Side and Mr. Ross Young, the CEO of USA Rugby, calling in from the Rockies in Colorado. Steve Lewis is still the reigning USA Rugby two-time coach of the year as per the COVID. He heads the Jamaica Sevens program, men and women. He is also the interim GM for Rugby United New York in Major League Rugby. But the big ticket item here is Mr. Ross Young, the CEO. Ross, welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the specific questions, let me just briefly bring everybody up to speed on what happened in bankruptcy court. Here's what happened. The Rugby World Cup Sevens Championship in San Francisco had a series of cost overruns and revenue shortfalls, which resulted in World Rugby providing $4.4 million in unsecured financing. Simultaneously, USA Rugby faced a $40 million breach of contract suit initiated by United World Sports over the rights to Sevens. It was the Vegas Sevens and then the LA Sevens. Men's 15s went $750,000 over budget preparing for the Rugby World Cup in Japan. Revenues from donations fell short by approximately 50%. The United World Sports suit, cost overruns, and the decline philanthropy had USA Rugby on the verge of insolvency. To remedy the situation, World Rugby supplied another $1 million to enable USA Rugby to stay open for biz. USA Rugby undertook major cost-cutting measures, including credit line freezes, layoffs, and reduced corporate travel. Assuming the productions in place on February 1st, 2020 had held, USA Rugby would have been able to operate only until May 2020. COVID-19 killed that. Dues revenue failed to materialize, and the May solvency timeline shortened to March, thus the bankruptcy filing. And I've got people asking me all the time, why this continues to happen, because it's like Groundhog Day and deja vu all over again for a lot of the membership. And I happen to be a big Ross Young fan and always rooting for you. But I've got people asking me, how the heck does this guy got to have his job? And that's your first question, Ross. Have I still got the job? Um, no, I mean, we've talked at various times, Matt, on, on this show and other times around the, the checkered history. Um, you know, and you know, you the summary there. You know that you laid out. I think a lot of the component factors were, you know, were sitting in the background, and we were always scrambling to try and get on the right side. Um, <clears throat> since I've been involved, and you know, I think everyone knows that history and won't go back through it. So, you know, I've said before on a number of occasions that, you know, I. The, the certain things I wish I could change, the certain things that are outside of my control. Um, and the, you know, the tailspin that we ended up going into on the, on the back of COVID as we're still trying to right the ship, 
when I came on board, I said I wanted to see this through. Reorganization, restructuring was always part of that process. As you alluded to, we'd started that in December last year. Um, <clears throat> obviously, not without COVID being factored into it in any way or form. And then a lot of that reorganization we've managed to accelerate um, through through this process. So, you know, I want to hang in there. Obviously, I, as everyone knows, it's been a complex environment. It's been difficult to unravel. I certainly have apologized and will continue to apologize for a, a couple of the errors that are made. But it's it shouldn't just be about me. It should be about collectively rugby getting back on its feet and I want to do whatever I can within my power to get us with a clear runway and a, and a foundation to be able to build the game on us that, that undoubtedly we all want to do. All right your Scottish counterpart has a couple of questions but we've we've agreed that we're going to just keep it civil so there's no Scottish on Scottish fighting here. All right Stephen you have a couple of questions for, for Mr. Young. Sure. Um, first off, good to see you, Ross. Looking well. I know you've had a rough go of it the last six months, so uh, you put a lot of work in and everyone does appreciate those efforts. But I think before we look to the future, we, we do have to acknowledge that past. Just one little bit more with a couple of questions. Um, the bankruptcy plan um, really takes care of and pays back, theoretically, the big boys. That's World Rugby and JP Morgan Chase, the two secured uh, creditors. But it doesn't really help, or it doesn't help the USA Rugby members, your members, the little guys in particular, who, um, who pretty much got stiffed. Um, so I just, I just want to mention a couple of them here so people have an indication. There's about 280 people or organizations affected. He's um, not going to name all of them. No, no, no. no. Rug rugby Virginia, Sacred Heart Rugby, both of the big college organizations, CRA and NCR, owed money. Oak Park El Elementary School District. Baker, Barrett, Niles, Sevens player, Courtyard by Marriott. There's a lot of people who got stiffed. And actually more of an opportunity than a question. Um, what would you like to say to those members? Uh, understanding the bankruptcy process, you have to take care of the big boys first. But uh, what would you like to say to the um, USA rugby members who feel still a bit bitter? First of all, I want to apologize. The last thing we want to do is have any stakeholder be out of pocket as part of this process. Um, you know, it's, it was not a situation we ever wanted to, to get into, which, you know, a lot of the plans that we talked about and that Matt alluded to prior to COVID hitting, you know, we wouldn't have been in that situation. We would have managed, we'd, we'd have managed those small unsecured debtors or smaller in comparison to obviously, as you said, the big boys in the right way. But, the way the bankruptcy process works, you know, we we can't look after one without the other. There has to be there has to be parity in you know when you list out all those creditors. So, you know, of course, you know, myself, the board, and everyone else involved, you know, apologise for putting people in that position. It's the last thing we wanted to do, but we didn't. If we were going to continue to survive, and as we talked about, try and get back to where we want to get to with the organisation. We had, we had to, you know, we had to take that action, Steve. Yeah. So moving on to the actual bankruptcy exit plan. Okay. So obviously you had to submit various figures, um, both to satisfy World Rugby and also the bankruptcy judge had to sign off on it. And so looking at some of those um, projected revenue and income figures. So for instance, on membership dues, it's 600,000 in the month of September, which is about to finish. 
um, it, it drops down a little bit and then you have another big spike in January, you're expecting 400,000. So between now and January, you are expecting or you have represented you're expecting about a million in membership dues. So two part question really, how realistic were those figures given the current situation? And how are you sort of matching up now? How successful have you been in uh, getting members to register? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I think as explained to the judge and the, the wider documentation, you know, we're always had to be a degree of um, flexibility in whatever those, those figures were because of the uncertainty of COVID and return to play. We've instigated or, or installed a new membership system, which has had its own teething troubles, but we're, we're there now. So, I mean, we're only really began to actively drive and open registrations over the last couple of weeks. So, I mean, we're, we're certainly not at the 600,000 mark. What, with all the budget and with that budget putting together, Steve, it was, you know, that, that income you know, was leveled against what expenditure was going to be. There's certain things that we haven't had the ability to do because of COVID likewise. So we're not going to spend money that we haven't got in the bank. We're just continuing to monitor it and ensure that the expenditure doesn't go beyond what's coming in. I think that 600,000 that was put in there, you know, I'm still hopeful that we'll get near that. We, are, we aren't that, we, we, are, we haven't had that initial, you know, for one of it's been used a number of terms, that spike that we would normally get in September because... The, you know, the return to play is being much more gradual based on different regional criteria around COVID. So you speak of the regional aspect of this, Ross, you know, this is the Northeast. There's nothing going on. Correct. And players are being asked to pay their dues to play touch rugby. And they're saying, screw that. They're going to wait till March. So that would indicate that there's going to be a, an impact on that budget. And what's the contingency? That budget, Matt, was not based on 100% of our members signing up. So that budget line was basically an aggregate of around 40% of what we would normally expect of active players. Um, you know, we have a, there's a reduced training membership that's available currently or COVID training membership, um, you know, for people that, 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 you know, that want to avail themselves of that they're not going to be get, able to get into the full contact aspect of the sport. But there are other areas in the Midwest, for example, that are playing games this weekend. So, you know, we were, we were certainly aware that there wasn't just going to be nothing like a full-on return to play in September. It was always a conservative number based on around that 30 35% total membership returning to some form of play as long as that happens before december then then you know we'll just continue to monitor that if it doesn't happen because we are witnessing globally a second wave of the pandemic with fans not being able to go to matches in europe now uh, at least in the premiership and the difficulties around that and and what usa rugby faces is a problem that none of these other nations face in, in the sense that we are so large and we also have issues politically on how to handle COVID and lockdowns, et cetera, in different states. And you're right under that umbrella, unfortunately for you. You, you have 50 states. You have different situations, basically in all 50. And yet 
your membership is in all those 50 states and that's key revenue. But we're no different. And that's the thing with it. You know, weekly calls with other NGBs as part of the USOPC council. I mean, the, there are a lot of entities in a similar situation and we just have to, we just have to cut our cloth accordingly, Matt. There's, there's, there's no other way to look at it. We, nobody has answers to those questions currently about when we're going to get back to normality, whether it's us, whether it's, you know, in, in the media, the issues someone like the RFU are facing where you know, completely isn't set, set a dynamic, but, you know, a lot of what drives them is not membership fees. It's having fans in a stadium for, you know, and they're a 200, looking to $240 million reduction in revenue if they get no fans in between now and, and spring next year. And that's what funds their community game. And they're having to scale back. You know, we collectively have obviously had to release a number of staff members at various points during this process. All the existing staff members took significant pay cuts nobody's back up to 100 percent because all that's contingent on on on, on what the money you, that you, comes in you the had door. that whopping pace you had that whopping staff and i think you're what down to eight outside of the hp eight full-time employees currently yeah yeah so we're facing stark realities and certainly this isn't your doing covid is not your doing but you are going to be the one that has to deal with the realities that are in front of us. So I'm just, I guess I'm just wondering in a, in a gloom scenario, a gloom and doom scenario, what the contingency plan is if we can't count on membership dues and we have, we're emerging out of bankruptcy court. What's the, is there some kind of leniency? Is there some kind of forgiveness for USA rugby under the circumstances of the pandemic? Not from the bankruptcy perspective. I think we, you know, we need to make sure that to Steve's point earlier that we, you know, with regard to Chase Bank in particular, um, the, that big secured creditor that we continue to make those payments. Um, I think, you know, forgiveness returns, you know, World Rugby, USOPC, their funding, additional fundings, as we know, we've, you know, and World Rugby have publicly stated they, they've had to support a number of unions that, to allow them to survive. I think there are always going to be avenues we're going to have to look at if we want the union to try and continue or, you know, the, but we, all we can deal with what's in front of us, Matt, and it's horrible. You make no mistake about it. Okay. So if we are in that place where we have that unfortunate situation, and I'm sorry, I keep going back to this, but if the budget monies aren't there come March because of COVID, how will you keep the lights on? Will there be the philanthrop philanthropic commitment, say, that we get for the Sevens program that might come from an organization like the Golden Eagles, for instance, that might help? Or you can't count on that either. I don't, I don't think we can count on, on anything other than just, you know, continuing to, you know, to manage what we've got um, and, and, and live within those means and, you know, look at, you know, look at the options in partnership with World Rugby about how we can just keep things going until we do come out the other side of it. And it, you know, that isn't going to be us, as we know, from small businesses all the way through at NGB, you know, you're all going to have to look to, to some form of partnerships, ask forgiveness to your point. I mean, we're in a position at the moment whereby we're obviously keeping outgoing to an absolute minimum to give ourselves some form of buffer. But ultimately, 
you know, if the revenue doesn't come in, we're going to have to continue to cut our cloth accordingly. I think the other issue for you, question is, how do you deal with the sort of trust deficit? Um, you know, the USA rugby brand has become something somewhat toxic um, publicly. And I think, you know, without being too harsh, a lot of people look, look at it like an abusive relationship. All right, so here we go again. Uh, we finally got away and, you know, dad's been to rehab. Uh, now he's back. Can we trust him? How do you go about, you know, it was philanthropic. I mean, that's all about trust as well. That's why those guys aren't keen to pony up. So, so how do you, in the midst of this difficult situation, sort of repair that sort of trust deficit? Or what can you do or what are you trying to do to, um, uh, to you know, just to get, garner that goodwill again? There has to come to a certain point where well, you have to look forward and not look back. Um, and, you know, fully, fully endorse what you're saying that there, there, there are, and I'm sure there will continue to be trust issues. There's, uh, but, you know, the, the reorganization, the strategic partnerships, the amalgamation of, you know, what was Congress into, you know, one, <clears throat> one representative entity with the various different community groups, the different councils that are out there is just continue to be open with everyone about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. And then getting out in front of it, you know, with the help of EY last year, and we, we talked about it on a show that there was lots of good work done on a broad strategic framework, but we never had the opportunity to That's Ernst and Young for people at home that... Yeah, sorry, Ernst, Ernst and Young. We have the framework there. We've got to put the business and operating plans, and we've got to do that in a proper stage way. And the federalization, if you like, or decentralization of some of the responsibilities into those councils will will be beneficial for everyone and let's make sure that governance is there let's make sure that training education compliance and those other elements you know are, are forefront and center to everything we do and deliver what we're supposed to and, and be upfront with it and that there's going to have to be a rebuilding phase speaking to the governance end of it i know that we're talking about decentralization but we do have a special situation we have this COVID thing and uh, getting back to what I was saying earlier about the difficulties of having 50 states and different GUs in different areas under different geopolitical climates or whatever you want to call it. If there's going to be a return to play, USA Rugby says, okay, yeah, you're all from 50, 50 states and different ge geographies and philosophies and whatever, but we're putting down a mandate that says X, Y, and Z for return to play, and this is how you return to play. You cannot do anything that your state um, political jurisdiction does not allow. So, so that, that's it's not a USA rugby thing. Um, we are in New York. This is Rugby United New York. We're in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Fairly close rules, but different rules. Um, sure. It's not a USA rugby thing. It's not our choice. It's strictly that local political jurisdiction. I don't mean just ignoring what the government is saying and having rugby matches and just gatherings. Admit it. Just admit it. It's a terrible question. It was a, it was a terrible question. It, didn't come, it was a good question in my head. It didn't come out right. But I'm getting emails already from old boys to, to play next month. And, and I'm looking at the email. I'm like, what are you talking about? That, this is what the mixed messaging is coming from. So I guess my question to you is the mandate says, hey, no rugby until X, Y, and Z. And when X, Y, and Z are satisfied, then you do it this way which is exactly what the covid guidelines say matt that, that there's there's tiers approach there's stages 
and as long as you comply with those you know you're you're in line with what we're doing but it's you know we know the fact that, that everything you know whether you you know you have the anti-face mask brigade in certain parts of of the country you know you're going to have people that want to push boundaries in different areas but ultimately as an overarching ngb we have to ask all our members to comply with those with the guidelines that, that are laid out there and you know if you can do there are lots of states and said so that, that you know they'll be coming to that, that looks as if they're becoming about to come full online to be playing matches by complying with those criteria all right guys we have to take a quick break but perhaps when we come back we can actually talk about some positives we'll be right back been blind since i was four and I've never seen a beer commercial or a beer label. None of that stuff influences me. I drink beer because of the taste. And my beer is Pabst Blue Ribbon. It has the taste and the flavor. What do you think is on the label? I think there's a, a naked woman riding on a unicorn, jumping over fire. That's good beer. If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig and Whistle, on West 36th Street. And we are back with the CEO of USA Rugby, Mr. Ross Young, and the champagne socialist that is Steve Lewis, who has a long resume, too long to list, coming back from our commercial break. But we promised to talk about some positive stuff, and we discussed off camera that Stephen would ask about the immediate, and I would ask about the long term. And Stephen, why don't you go first? Sure. So um, obviously part of a the mission of USA Rugby, uh, sort of um, resuscitated USA Rugby, is to you know, it's to put our national teams, men and women, boys and girls, in the best position possible to go out and compete when there is competition. Um, so could you tell us what the, the plans are for next year when, um, regarding, say, Sevens and the World Series coming back, uh, what the plans are for summer tests for men and women 15s? Obviously, we've got a Women's World Cup in New Zealand. So just maybe an overview of what, what's, what's happening for national teams going forward. Like everything, as we've talked about it, you know, the various points during these discussions, there's still a degree of uncertainty that has to be with all the, but the, the principles for next year are obviously focused to your point, Steve, on the Olympics and, and, and the, the World Cup in New Zealand. Um, and therefore that has to be the immediate focus for preparation for those two events. You know, as everyone's aware, World Rugby owns the calendar the calendar for next year is is under their control and it's interesting you know we talk about obviously issues from state to state within the US with domestic competition I think World Rugby have that same conundrum with regard to different countries and different criteria in different countries and especially an event like the World 7 Series it's probably the worst possible logistical event when you look at endangerment around COVID and COVID criteria because countries you know coming from players coming from countries all over the world and 
coming into one place and almost you know co-mingling within team hotels and team rooms and eating rooms and then playing each other so realistically those conditions are those discussions are ongoing um i think the you know we have regular weekly calls with world rugby and their competitions department around the seven series you know fortunately we've got mike on on the main working group that's looking at that as well that's you know, ensuring that there's at least a minimum number of games with the lead into the olympics um that's mike friday coach of the men's sevens program that you're referring to correct mike's part of that working group you know there are talk about some sort of warm-up events in europe potentially at the end of the year beginning of next year but realistically the idea is to kick off and have a minimum of five world series type of events starting in march to give good competitive competition for the uh for the men and women leading into to the tokyo olympics so a lot of that is to be confirmed and part of ongoing discussions and you know a a tournament in la is you know is certainly in the mix to be part of those you know, one of those five events that, that lead up for those tournaments. Similar discussions around confirming the competition that was supposed to take place at the end of this year for the women's team um, prior to New Zealand as well. And then currently the July window, as per the San Francisco Accord from years ago with various different games, is we're currently, we're currently uh, supposed to have England come to our shores in July. They'll play Canada one week, our us another week. Um, obviously, if the Lions tour goes ahead, that will be a developmental England side, but still a great opportunity for us to have a run against them. And we've got to work through how we get, you know, how we how we get a team prepared to play a team like England when they're not going to have played for almost a year before that. The I mean, the MLR obviously regular discussions with them. You know, they're having to delay the start of the season, as Steve knows, um, you know, and how that ties into the international window as well. But at least we're going to have domestic players, hopefully, with some meaningful games under their belt and not going into it cold. So, you know, I can't sit here and say these are going to be the games for next year, but certainly myself. You don't have that COVID crystal ball handy. Unfortunately not. But the, you know, the broad criteria everyone's working for is ensuring there are those competitive games for those two major tournaments next year and still working on the assumption that there will be some form of, there'll be the test match window in July, and then there'll be some form of America's rugby championship, um, you know, once the MLR's finished its season um, in that August, September window, but all TBC at this stage. A weakened England side coming over. Oh, I, I sense, I sense some fun and games with that on my part. But, um, no, that, that's great. I appreciate the update. So, okay, in a longer-term view, we've got chatter about the 15s Rugby World Cup coming here in as early as 2027 or in 2031. You've got MLR owners pushing for it. Uh, you, though, sir, are still probably pretty scarred from the Rugby World Cup 7s where you were charged with trying to make it work after it was already committed to. You've <laughs> said on this program that you knew it wasn't financially viable that it wasn't vetted properly what is your take on 2027 for a rugby world cup in the united states and or 2031 
I'm not sure I said exactly those words around it, Matt, but, uh, but I do agree with you that that... I get paid to misquote. The event, I mean, I, I came on board as a consultant for, from an operational perspective six months before that event and obviously try to help Rosie with every aspect of it from that point onward. And it was clear there were some fundamental flaws on how it was constructed. And, you know, there was you, are you going to dispute me saying right now that it was Will Chang who said, we're just going to do it and forced it forward and you guys were left to deal with the mess? Well, it's, I think the, the fact that it was the, the way, the way that certain elements were put in place at the time to safeguard any risk or loss in red, in retrospect, I would never have done it. I think any, and to really lead into your point around the world cup this time is, you know, I think during the bidding phase for San Francisco, <clears throat> I reached out and offered to help when I, I was with Sarevi Atavis at, at the time, um, not as a paid consultant by any stretch of the imagination, but just to be a stakeholder to help with that bid. Um, that offer of help wasn't taken up at that time. Um, but when you're going through a bidding process, the, the whole purpose of it is that one, you do a feasibility. So can you physically hold it and operationally manage it? Then as you're going through the bidding stage, you use that as an almost as a competitive environment to lock in the key costs for hosting an event. Um, that wasn't done during the, for the San Francisco event, which meant you're always playing catch up because you're no longer in a position of power as a negotiator or a host of an event. World Rugby went early on the back of Japan last year, which I applaud to look at the next two World Cups as part of their combined overall strategy. So awarding 27 and 31 at the same time, which opens the door for a more non-traditional base, which is exactly what happened when I was involved back in when they awarded Japan and and England at the same time. We have to have a fiduciary responsibility to at least explore it. Because if we don't, and we don't get ourselves in any form or order, then yeah, 2731's gone. So it's at least another 20 years before we can host the thing. Would USA Rugby benefit financially from plans that are be ban being ban banted about? Ultimately, if, we, if, we're, if we're hosted the event, then yes, we will. I think it's quite an obvious understanding that World Rugby would not be bailing us out to the extent they're bailing us out if they didn't feel they could recoup their money. And I think a World Cup is, um, makes sense in that regard. So some of the skeptics might say um, that a Rugby World Cup in the US would be different from those that have been held before in the sense that it would be more of a World Rugby private partnership USA Rugby event, so three partners, as opposed to the National Union. So obviously, as part of a World Cup bid, you have to get government uh, or sovereign guarantees, right, from the government, which is fine in France, the UK, or Australia, whatever. We're not going to get that. So those guarantees would have to be presumably private in nature. And what, what this tells me is, yes, we're going to get a World Cup. I'm all for it. But B, I'm not so convinced USA Rugby is going to benefit financially, even if they got it right. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, the, the World Rugby's remit is to generate elements whereby the global game benefits. It's owned by the unions. I mean, the unions and, and the council, you know, World Rugby is an entity and it has a duty of care around that growth. So, Steve, you're right, but every World Cup that I was involved with and since then has 
the the structure of it has always varied as you say a lot of it with physical government support some of it self-funded some of it insured some of it in japan with private equity as as well as because similar thing in japan is you wouldn't get the same type of levels of direct government funding um right you know going in as part of guarantees so the the spv or the structure is important i think from world rugby's aspect um ultimately it has to be awarded to a host union so we have to be in the middle of it um otherwise the the hosting criteria just doesn't work so you know and, and it's our responsibility to ensure that we do get the relevant upside and legacy elements of hosting a world cup as a host union maybe we could have the russians hack the process in our behalf and ensure <laughs> that we get that vote for the rugby world cup here in the united states but changing gears completely the last two shows have been about racism uh, in and out of rugby and we've had three black women and three black men on and i have to ask about the diversity that was brought up in the executive offices of usa rugby the administrative offices of usa rugby and and ask you to address that so i think dni and dni initiatives if you and Fader will probably attest to it that from you know something that we identified a couple of years ago improving i mean the the dni committee um you know was was launched over a year ago um in looking at initiatives of exactly how we can improve that i think you know fully supportive of uh, you know a number of the, the the comments that people have made about ensuring that we do put systems processes in place recruitment criteria to improve that and really that's you know i think at the moment around a number of the the social dilemmas that are being magnified because the environment we're in has brought that you know to the forefront more which is you know which i think allows us to continue our focus on that so you know the the purpose of having that committee in place the tors of that committee is to really help us build out and drive policy to improve those criteria on all fronts be it you know be it from a playing perspective be it from a recruitment perspective be it board representation and and, and national office employees it's you know we we want that group to to drive that and you know and the board's been a and myself been a supporter of that since since it started on the pitch i'm going to kind of combine with Derek Lipscomb, Nia Tapper, and Alicia Washington, we're talking about that rugby, you just need a ball and, and a field and cleats. And for that reason, it should be a lot more accessible to a lot more kids, specifically kids of color, and how there seems to be just those folks reaching out to pull in, like Roots Rugby, for instance, form to help bring in colored kids. Is there an initiative, something outside of an organization like play rugby usa to start getting more kids of color involved in rugby i mean you know all of those work streams have to fall through as part of the the forward strategic planning process because you know undoubtedly um the growth of the game in general needs to improve and i think you know if you look at the you know you look at demographics you look at bill we want more we want more participation in general and I certainly agree the fact that it has, you know, your point, it's not, it's not just the, you just need some cleats and a ball and a field to play. I think it's, 
it is a sport that we all you know we all revel in the fact it's for every shape size you know there's, there's a there's a position for everyone therefore you know all the criteria points towards it being diverse in in, in the way that it should be so i think anything that drives participation but and everything we do should have a work stream attached to it that is targeted towards you know more people of color more you know of the minority demographics and the same thing you know you talk it's not just race it, it's also gender the girls rugby organization that got set up we want overall participation and increase and of course we want to target as much diversity as we can within that recruitment process all right guys we are basically out of time Stephen, do you have a final question for ross yeah but very quickly on that topic uh, i think usa rugby is no different from other organizations within rugby and society in general um, education opportunity but i think i think the key thing now is we've all talked to talk we have to walk yeah. so i think that's that's the big message coming out final point for me i just like to um say hello to our colleague alex corbusiero and wish him all the best in his medical challenge thinking of you pal um go you well. beat me to it i have it highlighted right here that was going to be our my, my closing thought, but hey, we can always do it multiple times for the big fella. No, I'd jump in on that front as well. I think it's, you know, that he's gone through some struggles and a roller coaster himself. And as we said at the start of the call, I think, you know, got to put all these things in perspective and we're dealing with our own challenges as well with the sport, isn't it? So, yeah, good on you, Corbs. Dig in there, mate. And the fact that he's being a rock star and talking about it publicly, maybe helping yeah. people come out and, and deal with it is is uh he's just a, he's he's a legend and uh we're rooting for you buddy and finally uh ross i need you to comment on something that has dan power basically distraught <laughs> and i don't know steve if you're up to speed on this but carol baskin eliminated charles oakley in dancing with stars do you have any comment ross no comment just she's speechless ladies and gentlemen uh, i was going to try and say sing that what was it that tiger feet or the mud sob it, it, it was too late i mean you can't drop that on me and expect just the and you don't want to disappear suddenly either no. on, on some you right but on that note i want to thank mr ross young ceo of usa rugby bye everyone mr stephen lewis i'm matt mccarthy from midtown manhattan talking rugby signing off thanks everyone appreciate it wasn't that bad rossy poos was it